Sit so quietly. I was thinking about this proverb, which is a, a helpful proverb for me to think about, uh, which is, if you can't improve upon the silence, don't say anything. <laughs> so, okay, so I have to try to improve upon the silence, because it looks so beautiful, sitting in silence together. So tonight, um, We're going to do a little bit similar. Uh, We're going to offer a little bit, uh, each of us. um, Maybe flow back and forth a little bit. We'll just see how it goes. And again, wanting to begin to also recognize that our our time is um, always changing, but we're getting closer to to the end. And tomorrow night, we probably won't have that much time to talk about things that might be on your mind heading out uh, into the deluded world. We often call it the real world, and I don't understand why we call it the real world, because it's so deluded right out there. Uh, sorry, this is somewhat rare. I have a poem. <laughs> i read it to you. I can see it. So this is uh, by a poet from Oakland, Allison Luterman. Don't tell anyone, but even as a good Jewish girl, I loved Jesus. I love his dark Semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and the prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's just like that Buddhist Bodhisattva of compassion Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. <laughs> it's, it's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble. But oh, Jesus comes naturally to the lips. I just don't want to die saying, oh shit. I'd rather die like a llama, lying on my right side, and turn my head in the direction of my next birth. I know I'd have to meditate a lot to do this well. Or, let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus seems so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible especially with particular people close around us. But then, if you really look, you realize, what else is there to do? What else is there to do? So... Part of what we are doing here, um, it's just so, it's so precious. And if you think about what is this time that we're spending uh, in this life and you know, what to make of it, what to do with it, um, 
learning to love, learning to you know, open to this life the way it is, to be good friends, to be good partners, to be good children and parents. And just that simple question, you know, what else is there to do with our heart and mind in this mental stream that we have? And so I really am so touched when, you know, I finally settle into the retreat environment and I can sense and feel, you know, feel you. And there is this collective sense of being here in what is a really kind of beautiful space that... It is rare. It's said that it's rare, and it, it is rare to have a group that you're surrounded by who are doing what they can to look into the mind and heart and see what is worth seeing. Someone was sharing in the group today how you know, they really want to not forget some of what they're already seeing just in these first you know, few days, just a few days of being here, and yet days of our life pass by so quickly. And we can see what a few days, I mean, we might not all be feeling totally raptured and full of radiant love for all beings, but maybe we're getting one step closer, and that's amazing in a few days. So I used to, I used to really remember during these, my first retreats, I'd go on a retreat and then I'd have a long period afterwards and where I wasn't on retreat and of course a lot of suffering and I just didn't know how to practice in life yet. And then and I'd go on retreat and I'd have this feeling, it's like if I could only bottle this up right now, like bottle up this little bit of insight, little bit of clarity, put it in the bottle, put the cork on it and then you know, when I really need it later on, I could just open it and somehow it, it would do something for me. And, you know, part of what we are doing, um, not needing to bottle, you know, not needing to put anything away. And really it's like we're recognizing this possibility of our heart and mind to live with clarity, with, with some settledness, with openness, is always available. And in practicing like this, coming into an environment where we're supporting ourselves, supporting each other, it's really just like going and getting trained, like at a gym. You don't need to bottle anything up. Your muscles hopefully get stronger when you go to the gym. I wouldn't know, I never go to the gym, but (laughs) I hear that's what happens. I really need to do that. I need to start exercising. My body's getting older. Uh, but anyways, you know, coming into an environment like this, this is how it happens. We bring out these qualities that get developed. They get nurtured. And it makes such a difference. I, mean, I just think about these last... You know, I started practicing in 2001 and then really dedicatedly in 2003... And my life was in a complete kind of turmoil and confusion. I'd been wandering around India um, before my first retreat, dressed like a sadhu, 
with both of my brothers growing our hair out and really looking like we were lost and we were completely lost. And my poor parents, what they had to <laughs> endure. <laughs> but I remember my, my younger brother, before our first retreat, we had no idea what, this, what it's about. And he was looking at me and he was saying, you know, what if we get brainwashed in this retreat? And I was looking back at him with his, you know, long dreads and wearing a lungi and looking like a sadhu. Uh, <laughs> like, I asked him, right, what if we get brainwashed? And he said, he was looking at me, <laughs> and he said, would that be so bad? <laughs> Partly, you know, just sort of acknowledging we're lost a little bit, and it might be helpful for us to clear out all of this uh, stuff that's gotten collected in our minds and hearts. And then, over the years, you know, just day by day, having conversations with friends, with teachers, who teachers are really just people that have practiced a little bit more than us, you know, friends on the path, who are willing to take time and share, and this is what we do for each other. And it really is pretty amazing, um, the development that we experience. We can feel it on a small level when we come on retreat. It nourishes the heart, reminds us of what's possible. Hopefully it plants the seeds of that potentiality. And even small moments where maybe we put down the controller or the pushing, the pushing energy, or whatever it is that tends to torment our mind, or if we open to it, maybe with some compassion, those little glimpses reveal, in a way, the whole path. Right? They're like these fractals, and it just, just continues to expand and opens up into more parts and more aspects of our mind and heart. And I don't really know anything, any more direct path to well-being and to um, living a really good life than to take care of our heart and mind. There's lots of ways in which that happens, you know, just to say that sometimes what feeds us most is to be doing work that may involve engaging, and that oftentimes uh, really is the whole process. And as Sebane was saying, you know, this whole kind of movement of self-care and care for others and community, they just flow back and forth, and it's a natural movement. So I think we had wanted to talk a little bit about it's the importance of community. Um, is that right? <laughs> so, um, community is very important. <laughs> this phrase, beloved community, came up today in just such a beautiful term. Um, In some ways, we're living in both very distressing times, but also in incredible times where teachings from so many traditions and so many voices are accessible to us. And that, in a way, becomes part of our 
beloved community, that we can actually listen, we can choose what it is that we're listening to. And what we listen to will affect us, right? So if we always have the news on, for example, that will affect the mind and heart. If we are always engaged in kind of some sort of agitating activity, that that does build up. And then we have these opportunities to tune in, to find people that care deeply about purpose and meaning, about taking care. And having those conversations make a big difference. I remember the very first time that I got to meet a teacher, and that really was the teacher that became my main teacher, was Sayadaw Utejaniya. And I had been wandering around in India and doing some of these um, 10-day retreats, but they were all through the video, so I didn't have a, someone I could talk to. And then someone pointed me to Burma where there was this young teacher just starting to teach. And so when I went there and met him, I thought I was going, you know, I didn't know where Burma was actually. I didn't have a smartphone to look up Burma and maps weren't that accessible. I was already lost in India and I thought, (laughs) I don't know which direction Burma is, but it felt even further away from anything familiar. And then I met this, you know, this teacher who had been studying his heart and mind it's amazing. I felt somehow more understood or heard or something than I somehow had felt, even from my parents who just, you know, loved me so much. But there's something about when you do understand, you know, this nature of what we are, it's universal. And I remember each time that I would then go and see him again a few days later, a week later, it felt as if I was being met freshly, like he wasn't carrying the baggage and the stories and imprisoning me, imprisoning me in his ideas about me. His mind was so fresh and it just felt so beautiful to have that kind of experience. And it was so inspiring and I'd never felt that before, that I'd been, you know, I'd never been with someone who had really developed the wisdom and heart qualities. I've been with a lot of smart people, which is so radically different. You know, information that just builds up in our minds is just that, it's just information. But the knowledge that really understands the nature of life and suffering and deep meaning and purpose um, is something that, that really needs to come, that we need to explore and move towards on our, kind of our own path. And the more I see and have been around people who dedicate um, themselves to this path, it's just, I'm, I'm always amazed that we have this opportunity. So that's my way of saying community is really mm-hmm. precious and important and coming together like this, um, so valuable. So with that, for now, just want to hand it over to Sam. I said I would talk for just five minutes. Gone too long. You improved upon the silence, right? I did, okay. (laughs) Hmm. 
I know I've been trash talking this tradition a little bit, but when uh, <laughs> Alexis um, described uh, what a teacher is, which is just someone along the path, that reminded me how much I appreciate that about this tradition that it's not a guru model. And um, there's a real sharing of experience just from the heart, you know, that we are vulnerable, we are imperfect, highly imperfect beings that have practiced for a while and studied and have some things to share. But the, the group sharing really every time touches me like our altar sharing these kind of shared dharma talks where there's just so much wisdom imparted um, through that real opening of the heart. One of the things that really touched me today, uh, well, many, many things, um, but one was uh, just this delight in wonder and awe of the natural world, but also the human world. One person was sharing um, how they were in an airport on their way here and just kind of pondering like, wait, how do planes work? (laughs) And I've had that thought too. These wondrous hearts and minds of ours, and yes, it's led to a lot of trouble and challenge, but it's also led to such great beauty and magnificence. And although we we make space for the suffering that we often reject when we practice, and we, we really cultivate that capacity to turn towards whatever is happening, that's not at the expense of joy. My first teacher, Barry, his teacher, Charlotte Jacobeck, she said, joy is whatever is happening minus our opinion of it. (laughs) And she made a distinction between joy and happiness. Happiness has an opposite, unhappiness. It's not about good or bad or liking or disliking, but it's really resting firmly in a true knowing that things are the way they are because of causes and conditions. Needing them to be otherwise is delusion. And from there we can make an appropriate choice or response. But we can have joy in any moment. And that, that's really what these teachings have brought me. Someone asked today in the group, you know, what sort of kept me on this path. And I said, you know, suffering. <laughs> that I that I'm thankful to. You know, I'm really thankful for my experiences that kept me coming back to the teachings and coming back to retreat. And really just so appreciative that I could have the capacity to be in some of my deepest suffering, you know, really sick, almost dying, losing loved ones, being at deathbed, 
dealing with financial, huge financial challenges and physical, emotional, psychological troubles, and still touch into moments of joy. And I, I couldn't do that without this practice and without community. As we were reflecting in the small group today, you know, community is hard because it involves people. (laughs) (laughs) And there is another gift. Those challenges teach us so much. It's often the deepest, deepest practice. But we have to be willing to turn towards what's difficult there, too. It's telling the group that I I used to work full-time at a meditation center, and I used to have in my office on the bulletin board a card where I'd written, skillful does not equal not messy. As I saw very quickly how there was a tendency in Sangha, especially spiritual communities, to want to bypass the messiness and use the practice to do so. Not want to deal with what's uncomfortable, what's difficult, what's challenging. And real beloved community is messy. So that willingness <clears throat> to stay in that that we train for by sitting and watching our busy minds and hearts and being with our physical challenges. And that is our training so that we can go out in the world. As we've you know acknowledged it's bananas out there. There's a lot to be challenged by, but there's also an immense amount of beauty. I've, I've been witnessing and having conversations with others about just the phenomenal, almost exponential rise in consciousness raising right now. Like, there's so many witches on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. The, the turn to the earth, you know, the rise in the use of ancient medicines, and herbalism, plant medicine, meditation, heart-opening practices... There's a lot of change happening, but we don't hear about it. We don't naturally witness it unless we choose to, to turn our attention towards 
other than the news. But it's hard because we all live full lives. Most of us have demands on us from different directions. Technology itself becomes this addictive demand, even if it's not really necessary. And so I find even for myself, I have to make the conscious effort towards cultivating that beloved community. I was mentioning before, one of, a couple of nights ago, that I, I really took a break from a lot of Sangha activity and being engaged in really any more than necessary for sustaining myself in terms of work, but also um, any activism or any activity that really took me farther than I could manage in terms of my energy and health and my internal resources and also my external resources. And as I step back into that, and particularly um, one sangha that I'm helping to start and cultivate around climate crisis and the planetary crisis, I can already feel the challenges arising of differing opinions and views and vantage points. And yet I know that ultimately we all need each other. That I will not able to explore this just on my own, that we need community for the complexity of the challenges that are in front of us, and we need community to reflect back the joy. One thing that I love about teaching with Alexis and many of my colleagues is that we take joy in sharing with you, and it's just such a delight to see you all laugh and smile. I can't do that on my own in my own practice. There's a relational field that's necessary for, for that kind of expression. Just to say, lastly, that I've really witnessed my capacity for that to grow over these years. Many, many years. It took a long time. 
I did my first retreat in 1997. And um, I was a hot mess. And for many years, I was the youngest person in the room, the only person of color besides the Buddha. But it was my suffering that kept me coming back, and my capacity for joy, and for not needing to change every aspect of my life, whether it was an itch during meditation, or a treatment for a diagnosis, to actually need it and still be able to find the joy, to find freedom in any moment. And that's an ongoing practice for me. Alexis, I don't know if there's anything you want to add or if we want to open it up. So we can open it. So we'll open it up for any questions or reflections. And you don't have to improve upon the silence (laughs) with your interest. And then also if you'd like to just hear us reflect on some some topic that hasn't been talked about, that's also... Bob? Yeah, I just, I want to say how, how much I appreciate both of you talking with such openness and such um, grace about your own, you know, history and the amount you could do in the time that you've taken and how powerful that is to, as a support, as an inspiration, as a, and as a chance to reflect against our own experiences or my own experiences. Thank you, Bob. Mm. 
it's recorded. <laughs> I want my parents to be able to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Mary Louise was asking about equanimity as a practice. I was struck when someone, I can't remember what teacher, told me that equanimity or upeka is often um, used as a synonym for nibbana in the teachings. And it's often at the end of lists, there are a lot of lists, <laughs> and um, and often the lists are sequential to some extent. Right? There's a progression. So there's something really powerful about that teaching and that practice and that capacity. And for me, it's it's been really important to um, kind of tease out when it can feel bypassing, like when equanimity can feel like um, a passivity. But there is a sense of allowing. And to me, again, it brings in that question of cause, causes and conditions and cause and effect of allowing things to be as they are because they can't be any other way. Um, so that as a heart practice, which, is, which it is, it's the fourth Brahmavihara, um, it frees up our energy to be able to respond. But when we can allow, we're not in contention with reality, but we're actually available for engagement. And I really like... Um, there's a teacher, Martin Aylward, who he, he has a different way of kind of phrasing the Brahmaviharas. So metta, which is usually translated as loving-kindness, and um, karuna as compassion, and mudita as sympathetic joy, and upeka as equanimity. He says, you know, these are heart practices, and metta is the heart that cares. And... Karuna is the heart that responds. Mudita is the heart that delights. And Upeka is the heart that allows. And to me, that, that gives me an understanding of the flavor of this heart, this awakened heart. Those are the highest qualities that we can, can develop in ourselves. And so if we can care from there, we can respond to suffering, we can delight in joy, and we can allow things to be as they are so that we're available for those other responses. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like I'm starting to experience the grieving the loss of the retreat before it's even over <laughs> phase of the retreat and <clears throat> watching, you know, more habits of the mind come back that were more present at the beginning of the retreat, starting to plan and imagine my life out there. And so, I guess just looking for some practical encouragement on, you know, how to... So I'm thinking, there's so many hours left to practice while we're here in this beautiful mm -hmm. setting, compared to maybe the half hour or hour I would take in a day of a work day, you know, next week. I have so many hours left, and so how to be... You know, use, use what's coming up, obviously, as the practice. Um, I don't know, just, just love to hear a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you're sort of, now you know, you seem to, yeah. you're working with it. And, um, you know, the conditions of our life are always conditioning our mind, our consciousness, and it's amazing what one thought does, it creates the whole future, and what one, you know, one moment of seeing of someone triggers an entire experience, and so that, the sensitivity of our mind, it's just, it's amazing, and we miss it, we miss that that is happening moment by moment, and I used to think, oh my God, if my sensitivity gets any higher, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage. Because at one point when I was, got back from being on, you know, in Burma for that extent, you know, period of time, and then I was watching TV, which I'd obviously taken a long time away from, and then every commercial was making me just totally weep. And I was like, oh my God, like this is hopeless. If I'm... How can I be in the world if these commercials are making me completely fall apart? Which is what they're kind of sometimes meant to do. But even ones that aren't meant to be all that sad, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and so, so anyways, the sensitivity goes way up. But our capacity right, also grows. And yeah, so just as we move into different points of time, different conditions of how the idea of ending, what that begins to condition, the, the idea of then my life, my next thing, the my part of it, what that conditions. Because here... <laughs> Who are the forces?
Usually I lose my train of thought very easily, but I remember. <laughs> so here we have been, I think your mic is on less loud than mine. I feel less loud. Do I feel okay to you? Same. Okay. So here, you know, the view has been primarily as we've been, you know, gaining momentum and being in an environment that helps to support this sense that moment-to-moment experience is composed of a lot of conditions coming together. And we're able to see, at times, the thinking mind and then the emotions that arise and moments of hearing, moments of seeing, moments of the body moving. And we're really awakening to what is a process that's been our whole life happening already. And here we're, we're awakening to it. And we're seeing it as, as, as a process. Or, and if that's dry, it's like as a flow or conditions unfolding. As soon as we have contact with things that trigger the other view, which is, you know, in the Dhamma is called the called unwise view, but it's the view that tends to make the heart and mind react and contract more, which is views of self, of other, of solidity, permanence, things being, you know, a projection we create solidity out of things. And that's the challenge. How do we how do we engage with our life, our family, our work as ongoing moments of experience that we can awaken with and inside of. One, one really just very helpful phrase that Utejani had shared with me once as I was going you know, back into life, and he's so much about being natural. And, and I was sharing with one group today the image that would often come to mind if he were like an animal spirit. It's not the most flattering animal, but he would be like a water buffalo, is what I was sharing with the group, because it's like water buffalo is just in the mud doing its thing, sounds coming out both sides, <laughs> the way Utejaniya is. It's just like, like sounds are just, you know. So he's, he's living nature. Um, anyways, he said, do what you're going to do. Be natural and bring your awareness along with you. And it's such an invitation, right, to, to I'm not needing to perfect myself and, and do something really, I don't know, like where I'm trying to squeeze myself. Um, and actually along those lines, just remembering, I've shared this before, you know, went through this uh, training when I came back here, you know, to the States, and, and so he got involved in, in IMS and Spirit Rock, and I went through this, this four-year training, you know, in, in this role to be a teacher and stuff. And um, and when I told, and Utejani had encouraged me to teach, and then when he really finally knew I was going to do it, his, his whole teaching to me basically came down to one sentence. And what he said was, don't be too good. I was like, oh my God, I've needed to hear that my whole life. Like, taking all the pressure off, just be yourself. And it was like four years of training with all these like, other teachers, and one little sentence was like, oh wow, that's what I needed to hear. Just, just be yourself and share. And so anyways, I say that just, we can live our life, we can be natural, and keep learning. Just keep, keep bringing your practice with you.
want to add something on to what I said to you, Mary Louise, about equanimity, because as you were talking about um, don't be too good, it was reminding me of um, the last time I was here, which was in July. And my trip home took 56 hours. Um, because Mercury went retrograde. <laughs> and it was like every airport I went to, I went between, I went through six airports between Albuquerque and LaGuardia. Storms and cancellations. And it was really interesting to see um, the first couple of airports and the first couple of nights um, there was a balance, you know. There was sort of just a resting in, okay, I don't have my luggage, okay, you know, this is taking a long time, and I can't control the weather. By the time I hit Detroit and found out that my next flight had been canceled, I just burst into tears. But what was interesting was my response was care. You know, that I really, um, I could really feel for myself of how exhausted I was and how frustrated I was. And um, so just to say equanimity doesn't always look like this balance. And and there was sort of a performative quality to the the equanimity I had in the the first legs. Like, look how good I am. (laughs) Not being bothered by all of this. I'm a Dharma teacher. (laughs) And so, like, the realness of equanimity, of really just responding to the the difficulties. I just wanted to say that I loved the meditation on the elements oh, this morning. I just loved it. And I loved how you mentioned how it, four or five or six elements is in almost every tradition, mm. ancient spiritual or knowledge tradition, and even in Western astrology, mm-hmm. which I used to be obsessed with, so I also appreciated you mentioning Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about the element of air the way you described it today, mm. so I really love that. Thank you, Beth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to reflect on maybe the second foundation of mindfulness. I think of that as the one that everybody skips, mm-hmm. <laughs> paying attention to your immediate reaction, positive and negative. I, I um. I mentioned in the opening altar ceremony that I had to give up surfing the web in order to make some time for a new project that I have. But what's behind that is that classic addictive behavior. You're carrying a device with you, and something occurs that's a challenge. It's an emotional challenge, and you don't really feel like dealing with it. It's unpleasant. And you just immediately trigger into, oh, I'll numb myself out by surfing the web for a while, which turns into far too much time, and then you forget everything you were doing, and you lose a lot of time from that. Um, 
I feel like in this modern era where we're all surrounded by devices that are designed to have that behavior, designed to addict us, algorithmically tuned to our particular buttons, right, by an impersonal algorithm, um, maybe the second foundation of mindfulness becomes a really critical thing to teach um, more intensively in the early parts of the practice. And I'm bringing this up now because I've encountered it in other retreats before, always as, oh, it's this tiny, subtle little thing that you have to pay a lot of attention to see whether you're responding in a positive or negative way to every experience. Um, but I found this week, with that question that you brought here, of just trying to keep in mind, how is my mind reacting to this? How am I processing this object right now? It seems like I've had a little more access uh, to that. and and. I just wonder if that's a, you know, is there some significant difference between what we're doing now and, and the teaching on the second foundation, or are they really kind of one and the same thing, and maybe this is a, a useful way to, to keep ourselves more balanced in the presence of these addictive devices? Mm. Please clarify what the second foundation yeah, is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I've, I've lost my voice again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So John, John is <laughs> referring to, um, so we keep referencing this discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on mindfulness, and there are four foundations to mindfulness. The first is the body, the second is called Vedana, it's often translated as feeling tone, the third is uh, mind-heart, um, and then the fourth is sort of the patterns. It's called dhammas, but it's, it's how all of these play out. And <clears throat> um, we haven't been teaching the, those teachings in a sequential way. And just to say, you know, that it's said that there are 84,000 dharma gates because there are so many teachings, there's so many lists, there's, there's so many different ways to practice, there's so many techniques. I, I love the Satipatthana Sutta. I think it's it's just such a brilliant, um, comprehensive, kind of very understandable to my mind way of of seeing the practice. So I appreciate that you you can connect to it too, and it's it's not that everyone has to practice that way, but Vedana, this second foundation, is is really powerful and important because it, it, it talks about our capacity to be aware of what is pleasant, what is unpleasant, and what is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Building our awareness of that. But it's interesting because Vedana, um, I'm going to nerd out a little bit, its, it's root is the same as Panya's wisdom. So it's not it's our way of knowing something, but it doesn't have any volitional quality to it. So it's not liking or disliking, which I think is really its power. Because we learn to bring awareness to what is pleasant and unpleasant and the things that are neither without a need to like or dislike. Actually, liking and disliking comes in the third foundation. So it's a great training place to work with, and I, I find bodily sensations are great for this, because what is pleasant, what is unpleasant? For some of us, an itch can become wildly unpleasant. 
But if we pay close enough attention, sometimes it becomes pleasant. It's just this weird sensation. It's a, such a bizarre feeling in the body. Even pain. When we pay close enough attention to it, we can label it unpleasant in the beginning, and then maybe it becomes neutral. So it's, the, it's kind of the step before the liking and disliking um, doesn't have that volitional quality to it. But I think you're right, it's a, it's a very important kind of um, capacity or knowing that we, we can develop. Yeah. We've, we've been alluding to it, but we haven't really stated it clearly that that's what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it. It seems to be maybe in the backdrop of probably all all teachings in some way because it is what triggers, as Sunday was saying, the the moving towards or the moving away of the mind. I used to when I was being first introduced to these teachings, I thought, why craving and aversion? And it took me a while to realize, oh, craving is one kind of deeply like elemental or you know primordial thing of pulling in and then pushing away aversion and how that happens is because of our minds heart mind heart getting touched by something that triggers it the pleasant goes oh the unpleasant and you kind of see that in the world and then you know when we have this consciousness that we have and hear these teachings, we begin to recognize that there is this step of being contacted and then a reaction. And that reaction becomes a pattern that gets deepened. And there's one um, teaching that, um, again, we never know exactly what what the Buddha actually said, but in this one teaching, according to what's preserved, something to the effect of um, something, again, like the untrained worldling, the ordinary you know, being, when contacted by the unpleasant, has no uh, no escape or no almost like basically no other option other than to reach for that which is pleasant. And we can kind of see that when we really get overwhelmed and caught, what our mind wants to do is get away from that and to get to something. And so this, that particular foundation of paying attention to the feeling tone, of something being pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant, helps us sometimes to realize, oh, this is why I'm feeling so reactive right now, so caught, is either our mind is attending to the unpleasant characteristics, and then all we're doing is focusing on that, and we go, I want to get out, right? And that's, these, and I've mentioned a few times, I think, I don't know, in the whole group, but these afflictive emotions, the way they operate is they pay what's called unwise attention to characteristics so it gets narrowed and we don't understand the process. So if we experience a bad mood, we begin to think about it and then it 
feels like reality and this is who I am. Or some thought about ourselves and it becomes an identity. And our, and our whole attention gets very narrowed. On the liking side, we look at something and we see the pleasantness of it. All we take in are the, the signs. We, we kind of focus on the signs. It's called nimittas, like the, the things that let us know that it's pleasant to our mind. And then we keep going towards it. And as you said, our, our devices are, you know, it's like hacking our brain so that they know, you know, what is it that keeps the mind really engaged? And it's the bright colors and the intensity. And um, So when you begin to recognize that, you can start to feel the movements of the mind towards, in a way, then that, you know, and that's, in a way, what all mindfulness practices allow us to do, is to see, our, to see these patterns. And if it's helpful to highlight certain um, parts of, you know, these teachings, then that's, that's great to do. You know, just pay attention. Oh, here's the feeling tone, and here's the reaction. Let me just watch that process. Other times, it may just be having a broader, more spacious knowing of how the mind is reacting, and you already intuitively know that it's unpleasant. You don't necessarily need to name it in your mind. But sometimes, you know, it's just depending on the moment and, and what feels resonant. Yeah. Yeah, and just in, that, in a way that points to, even though the term that's used in the second noble truth, there's another list, right, sort of four noble truths. The first one is there is suffering, the second is there is a cause. And the cause is how our heart and mind is reacting right, to experience, and it reacts through craving. Right, through experiences that we tend to get identified with, we don't see them, we don't see the characteristics of them being changing, just a flow of causes and conditions, and so our mind gets caught up into them. And so when we see this process, then it leads us into the ending of suffering. And we look into then the mind that actually is free of suffering, that's where we actually discover what the mind is doing, which is actually the path this path of having right view. I'm going to say the whole path right now. So it's eight steps, another list. <laughs> so that fourth foundation, just so you hear it, for those of you that haven't heard it before, in that fourth um, noble truth, so first is, there is suffering, there is a cause, there is the ending, and there is a way for that ending to happen. And there is these, what's called the noble eightfold path. And we could say that's what we're doing every moment of being on the path, of being aware, is having some right view, some wisdom in the mind, some intention. could be simple renunciation or kindness, care in the heart and mind, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right mindfulness, which is what we a lot here, right effort, and right stability of mind. Right effort, right mindfulness, right stability of mind. And so, yes. I don't know why I said all that, but there it is. I just want to add, you know, I think that Vedna is a great place to um, witness impermanence because often what is pleasant turns into neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You know, it's classic, like we're craving ice cream. 
and and those first few bites are extremely pleasant, and then the hit is gone. And so to witness that change, you know, part of the Satipatthana teachings are to see how impermanent every experience is, all phenomena. And it says that's the most important teaching, actually. So that to, to watch that change of unpleasant to pleasant, pleasant to neutral, neutral to pleasant, is, is a great is a great place to see how often our ideas about something are very different than our experience of it. Share a quick story. Probably won't be that quick, but I'll try to make it quick. So, uh, um, as a monastic, a nun or monk, you're supposed to not uh, one of the renunciations is to not take solid food after the noon meal the, when the, uh, the sun is at its peak. So then you're sort of fasting half the day you know, until the next morning meal. And um, it takes a little while to get used to. But there are these um, sugar balls called jag- jaggery. I think in India, jaggery in Burma, I'm not remember the name, it's a kind of condensed sugar that is considered medicine. And it's offered <laughs> to the Sangha. Sangha meaning, in, in this case, the, the monastics. And if it's offered to one monastic, it's offered to the entire Sangha. So as long as it's offered, because you're not supposed to take anything that's not offered as a monastic. And so these are offered, and they're sitting then in the back of the hall. And then, so then late at night, one night I was doing this walking alone, and similar to that down Abbey story, but this one was another time walking back and forth, and every time I was walking by these, the sugar that was just sitting there innocently. And my mind just, as I got close, I could just feel the intensity of it kind of reaching out to me. And then I'd go, and I'd go to the other, and it'd sort of diminish a little bit, and then go back. And it just, and it was wearing me down. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. So I finally, it was like, I grabbed the whole thing. I was like, all right, let's do this. And I, I put it down in front of me and just sat with it right there and just looked at it. Embarrassingly, I, I think I ate most of what would have been for really the entire summer <laughs> that, that evening. It's karma, so like hours later, it's like rushing to the bathroom. And, uh, 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 and um, it was, an, it was an, <laughs> not recommended, but I did learn a lot about craving that night and about you know, the feeling down of the pull of something that's very pleasant in mind. And as I was pointing out, it was changing as I was, as you did. And it's sort of, this is something you can notice during any meal that's really pleasant. At some point it changes, right? If you keep eating it. Keep eating it. And yet that, if, we don't, if we don't know to pay attention to that, we miss that really powerful insight. So, yeah, thanks for being Better to take the insights that other people have through their own <laughs> than, 
you know, having to make your own, like, your own lessons. But also, it's nice to hold it lightly and playfully, like, uh, that we can kind of explore our habits of mind without judging ourselves and getting caught up in, I I shouldn't have craving, or I should, you know, if you actually get curious about it and, and open to it, they yield so much fruit, you know, for us to, to see. Thank you for all your reflections and questions, and maybe we'll just close with a brief sip.
recognizing that in our time together, we're cultivating these beautiful qualities of heart and mind, the heart that cares, that responds, that delights and allows. Touching into our true nature (coughs) and generating goodness, kindness, love. We can share that with each other and also share these benefits with all beings everywhere without exception. May all beings find joy and freedom. May all beings find true liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.